1: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight, five full weeks into Putin's horrific war in Ukraine that's targeting civilians, killing 148 children so far, according to Ukraine's defense ministry. And we just learned that one person died and four were injured when Russian militants shot at a column of volunteers near Cherniv today who were trying to help civilians evacuate. This war is not going well for Putin. His soldiers are sabotaging their own equipment, according to the U.K. spy chief. And a U.S. official told NBC that we have information that indicates that some Russian government senior officials likely disagreed with Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. Their disillusionment is probably amplified by the Russian military's underperformance. The Kremlin is on defensive, denying reports that Putin is being told false information about how poorly it's going because people are too scared to tell him the truth. Meanwhile, Putin signed a decree today drafting more than 134,000 new conscripts into the Russian army. They're being told that they are not being sent into Ukraine, but it's important to note that Putin also denied that conscripts had been sent in earlier in the war, and that turned out to be a lie. In fact, the use of conscripts may be why the invasion went so poorly in the first place. They tend to be younger, less motivated, and poorly trained. The Ukrainian government announced today that they're regaining territory, liberating two villages in the Cherny region and claiming that Russian equipment is currently being moved away from Kyiv and that Ukraine is recapturing villages there. Yesterday, my colleague Richard Engel visited an abandoned Russian camp on the outskirts of Kharkiv.
0: This was a Russian camp and you can see they had all of their weapons here, dugout positions and they were bombed. There's still some... Bodies in this area, and they left a lot of their equipment behind after what appears to have been a devastating attack on their position. There's nothing left.
1: While the area might be back, excuse me, in Ukrainian control, what civilians have gone through is harrowing.
2: 88 year old Praskovia was sitting by herself, disoriented. And frightened. I'm so afraid. My whole body is shaking. At night, I cover myself in a blanket and I shake, she says. Mostly, she wanted comfort. Brascovia says she lived through World War II and doesn't have the strength to go through it all again.
1: And it's certainly far from over. Kharkiv is under constant attack, with Ukraine saying Russia fired 47 strikes last night alone and that Russia is refusing to allow humanitarian corridors there. Humanitarian corridors did open up today in Mariupol, which has been relentlessly besieged by the Russians. President Zelensky said today that thousands of civilians have died there. NBC News is unable to verify that number. Just under 1,500 people were able to evacuate the region today through three corridors. But Russian soldiers seized 14 tons of humanitarian aid, including food and medicine. This is all a part of Russia's focus on the eastern part of the country, where Ukrainian officials say Russia is considering sending their own officials to preside over occupied territory. Russia claimed to take over another territory in Donetsk today of the Ukrainian government, uh, the, where the head of the Ukrainian government says they're using white phosphorus munitions. This is a claim that NBC News has no way of verifying. White phosphorus is not banned by international law, but if the weapon is used to target civilians, it can represent a violation of the laws of war. The Kremlin has said that they haven't violated any international conventions. Now, the capital, Kiev, meanwhile, even as Russia stru- struggles to advance on the ground, they've still been striking Kiev. And the NATO secretary general said today that Russian forces are not withdrawing. They are just regrouping. Here's what President Biden had to say on that today.
3: It's an open question whether he's actually pulling back and going to say, I'm just going to focus on the Donbass and I'm not worried about the rest of the country. I'm a skeptic. It appears so far that he has not pulled all of his, the IDs he's pulling all the troops out from around Kiev and moving south. There's no evidence that he's done that.
1: Joining me now from Lviv is Ali Velshi, MSNBC correspondent and the host of Velshi. And Ali, my friend, it is so hard to sort of understand what the narrative is here, because the narratives all appear to be sort of all at the same time. Russia is failing in its military objective, but they're killing and slaughtering a lot of people and destroying lots of territory. They're either pulling back— or they're just stalling in order to go in harder? Is it is it possible from where you are to get a sense of which of these things is true or all of them true? Yeah.
4: Or, or, or is it confusion or is it deliberate uh, disinformation? It's very, very hard to tell. And what you were hearing and showing what you just described is the sort of conflicting uh, types of, of intelligence that we're getting right there. They're uh, British intelligence suggesting that some of these uh, conscripts, these Russian soldiers are sort of protesting. They're 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 sabotaging themselves. The idea that they were pulling away from Kiev and neighboring areas in order to build trust during those negotiations. Well, we have evidence that that didn't happen. There was shelling that was continuing to occur in those places. This idea that they want to focus back on the, the Donbas and the eastern region of the country and, and that uh, the focus on Kiev and other places was just uh, meant to be a distraction. It, it becomes impossible to tell what the truth actually is here. And as you said, we can't confirm all of those things, but you can see Richard Engel's actual reporting. We have seen uh, reporting from our colleagues at Sky News that shows the actual destruction of uh, residences, apartment buildings and things things like that. And it sort of plays out even here in Lviv, which was thought of as a very peaceful place, which seems like a very peaceful place during the day. Right now, obviously we're under curfew, so nobody can move around. But even people here who came here for safety uh, have been saying things like there's no safe place in Ukraine. So at this point, it becomes very, very unclear as to what is actually going on. The important thing, and it's a message that's coming from the, the U.S. government, but it does seem to bear out on the ground here, is that the morale of the Ukrainian soldiers with the assistance of the weaponry and training that they're getting from the West is seeming to hold them together. Now, they've warned several times that they're running out of stuff. Yesterday, that conversation with uh, President Zelensky and President Bush, which lasted an hour, did result in 500 million dollars more being sent to Ukraine. But that money, interestingly enough, is to run their government. This is Mm. not a rich country. This is the poorest country in Europe, and they are struggling to run their country and conduct this defense against Russia. So it's unclear. I think the only thing we're clear on is one way or the other. This is not going the way the Russians thought it was going to go, because we had had reports of 72 hours or 96 hours before they take the whole place. It's not clear whether Vladimir Putin understood that not to be true or he thinks he's been duped by his own people. But something's not working for the Russians. And that is about as much as we can be clear on.
1: Yeah. You know, the it, 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 mother Russia has been fooled before uh, by the same sort of scenario. It's almost as if they, they you know, they thought, well, Afghanistan, you know, the, the capital of Afghanistan fell quickly. We're just going to do that. And now they've sort of built themselves another Afghanistan the way the, the Soviet Union had it. Uh, a mess. Um, Ali Velshi, stay yeah. safe. Thank you, my friend. Really appreciate you. Um And joining me now is former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor, who's the vice president of of Russia and Europe for the U.S. Institute of Peace, and Jamil Jaffer, executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University, and former chief counsel to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And thank you both for being here. And Ambassador Taylor, I guess I'll start with you first. Can you make sense of this? Because it seems that, you know, Russia is doubling down, but doubling down on failure. If their troops are stealing food and medicine and supplies that are supposed to be helping refugees, that. Tells me that they're not properly supplied with food and medicine because they have to steal it, um, and they're bombing places that are now essentially empty of people and where people are running away. Where there's, you know, they're, they're, it's not a military fight. Can you make sense of what it is that Russia at this point? What are their goals?
5: So, Joy, that's the right question. What are their goals? Um, President Putin at the outset, I think you've indicated, uh, thought that he could go right down the river and get to the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, um, in three days. And that clearly didn't. Here we are, Joy, on, on what? Day 36. Um, and his, he's run into, his military has run into severe problems, not just with their own problems. They're not just the fuel and food that you talk about. They ran into a very motivated Ukrainian military. The yeah. Ukrainian military has stopped that advance. And not only stopped it, Joy, they're pushing them back. The Ukrainian military is pushing back the Russians out of places that they were. So I have a good friend, Joy, and uh, I just got word from him for the first time in a week. Um, He had been, he had actually been a civilian, then in the Territorial Defense Forces, and then into the regular military. And when he went into there, he was deployed right into the front. Took his phone away because he, because he might have been captured. they was he was vulnerable to be captured. So they didn't want him to have his phone. And today he got back his phone because they've they've done so well, pushed the Russians back. His unit has gone down in in its uh, in its alert level, which is a good sign. It, it corroborates what you're saying. That says that the Ukrainians are doing extremely well.
1: You know, and, and, Jamil Jaffer, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. And, I mean, we're, we're, we're hearing reports that, the, you know, the Russians have given back control of Chernobyl, which means they weren't capable, really, of even operating that and operating the power systems. And, you know, they, they couldn't do it. They're giving it back to the control of Ukraine. Um, it does appear that their military, if it's full of conscripts who are low-motivated, who are complaining uh, on radio transcripts that are getting, you know, that are getting picked up, or at least the information war that Ukraine is—it is, is, seems to be winning, in which they're depicting Russian troops as unmotivated, unskilled, and unprepared. What do you make of the situation?
2: You know, you're right, uh, Joy, that it, it's really been an amazing thing that the Ukrainians have done in terms of the information war. They have owned that battle space in a way that you couldn't have even imagined, and particularly given the success the Russians had in the 2016 elections and the like, the Ukrainians have dominated that space, demonstrating the, the horrific impact the Russians are having on the civilian population, at the same time, demonstrating the unwillingness of the Russian soldiers to do certain things, and the, hero- the heroism of the Ukrainian civilians who were standing up in front of tanks. The scenes that we saw, you know, in China during the Tiananmen Square, we're seeing over and over again, in Ukrainian media is putting out there, and the Western media is picking it up. They are really dominating the information battle piece in a way that I think nobody expected they would, even more so than they have on the battlefield itself. Those two things combined have really taken it out of the Russians. I think it's given them a real challenge, uh, both back at home, but also uh, in the popular media here.
1: You know, and and I guess that the question is, Ambassador Taylor, then how do you get um, uh, Putin to walk back? Um, You've had, you know— Volodymyr Zelensky has been incredibly successful, as Jamil Jaffer just said, in in his information war. He is very skilled at communications. But he's still having to berate countries like Belgium to say, you know, stop doing diamond business with Russia. You know, he's still dealing with people like the Koch brothers here in this country who are willing to still do a crude oil business with Russia. You know, he's still having to play whack-a-mole with people who still want to play ball. Meanwhile, you know, Putin is, like, demanding that you pay for oil in rubles, trying to build up his economy— is there a way to get Putin to, to stand down if he's getting nothing? There's no face-saving move for him here. He's just losing and making destruction.
5: He is losing and destroying the country, at least the parts that he's he's after. Uh, which, interesting, Joy, the, the parts he's really destroying are in the east, are are next to Russia. These are Russian-speaking people. Right. Um, and they're all Ukrainians. And they are united against him but they're Russian-speaking. These are the people he thought would be there to welcome him. So he he's counterproductive uh, on that. And you ask the right question, what gets him to sit down at the negotiating table? And I think the answer is when he understands, when he realizes, when he's made to understand that he's losing on the battlefield, that he's not winning, that his troops are not doing well, uh, his troops are being pushed back, like we just said. When he understands that he's not going to gain on the battlefield what he was after, then he may look for some way to salvage something, and and there are a couple of things that the Ukrainians have already talked about that that President Putin could say, "I got the Ukrainians not to be in NATO." He there are some things he could do there and the negotiating table, but he has to first understand he's not winning on the battlefield.
1: Yeah, and Jamil Jaffer, there is a new news from NBC News um, reporting that. You know, the, the, these missiles are coming. So, 24, uh, since the invasion began, 24 U.S. cargo planes have unloaded hundreds of anti aircraft stingers. These are these missiles that we talked about. They can go higher. Um, they can actually take down aircraft. Um, 4,600 4, Javelin anti tank missiles have also gone to Ukraine, per the White House. If, if Putin won't stand down, it appears that we now go into the long insurgency phase, and an insurgency that's going to be fought in part in cities. Um, we remember that and how that went for us in Iraq. If this becomes a long-term insurgency, then how do you end it?
2: Well, that's exactly the hard part of this, Joy. You know, part of the reason that Vladimir Putin is in right now is that we didn't effectively de- effectively deter him from going in. If we delivered these weapons well ahead of this, we might have effectively kept down the country. Unfortunately. We are now where we are, and I actually fear the ambassador is exactly right. Putin doesn't see a way out, and he's going to triple down on his attacks on civilians, on his attack on civilian infrastructures, schools, theaters, you know, uh, hospitals, the like. And, and in a long-term insurgency, that is worse for the Ukrainian people. You look at what happened in Afghanistan. We fought a tough yeah. war there, but it was very destructive for the people of Afghanistan. And this is not a good thing. It's not good for the United States. It's not good for our allies. It's not good to have a war going on in the middle of Europe that lasts a long time. You know, that we could have deterred it. Now we've got to figure out how do we push Putin out and get him get him out as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, he still believes the allies don't have the wherewithal to get in and really push him out. And so he may be willing to double down and push even harder. That's the concerning thing for me.
1: Unfortunately. Right. I mean, he's still in Syria. You know, look what 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 he's doing there and continuing to do. Uh, it is a, it is not it is a conundrum. We'll leave it at that Um, up next on The Readout. Thank you both gentlemen uh, very much. Jamil Jaffer, Ambassador William Taylor. And up next on The Readout, Jared Kushner was not at the White House on January 6th, but he does know many of the key players in the effort to overturn the election, including, of course, his father-in-law, the former president. So what might Kushner have told the January 6th Select Committee today? Plus, Lindsey Graham has a long list of grievances about Democrats, and now he's taking it out on the supremely qualified Judge Ketanji brown Jackson. and it's team smith versus team rock seems like everybody's picking a side in the ugly incident at the oscars this as the academy begins what it calls disciplinary proceedings against will smith while not being super clear about their own part in the drama the readout continues after this
6: With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future.
1: Today, Jared Kushner met virtually with the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Chairman Benny Thompson told reporters that the committee has no evidence that Trump's son-in-law was involved in the planning of the events of January 6th and has not sought to obtain his email or phone records, but that he's of interest because of the role he played as a senior advisor in the administration. Princess Ivanka, daddy's favorite enabler, did attend the rally at the Ellipse and famously called the violent insurrectionist's patriots. She later deleted that tweet. According to reports, the prince and princess of nepotism hosted a fancy dinner for administration officials at their house nearly 24 hours after their daddy's supporters tried to tear down American democracy. Since Trump's failed reelection bid, the two have bent over backwards to try to rehabilitate their reputations. It should be noted that while the right is having a collective freak out about what a private citizen, Hunter Biden, did When his father was no longer vice president, Jared and Ivanka made $640 million while they were working at the White House. Meanwhile, according to Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar, a member of the January 6th committee, the panel is working to fill the nearly eight-hour gap in the White House phone logs. Chairman Thompson confirmed to reporters that the panel is considering issuing a subpoena for Trump's personal phone records. The House Rules Committee will meet Monday to decide if they will recommend that the House find Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino in contempt of Congress for their refusal to comply with subpoenas. Joining me now, former federal prosecutor Glenn Kirshner and Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, a former impeachment manager and a member of the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. Thank you both for being here. Congressman, I'm going to start with you. It is heartening to hear that um, the committee is at least considering going after Donald Trump's phone records, because I think that seven and a half hour gap, you know, not since Nixon has there been a greater scandal. And this is far greater than the 18 minute gap. Um, do you believe that the committee and that your fellow Democrats and two Republicans will have the gumption to go ahead and issue that subpoena?
7: I hope so, because this guy operates like a mob boss and he knows what to say, what not to say and on what you know type of forms to say it We learned that from Michael Cohen, we learned that from so many others that he doesn't write emails, he doesn't send text messages, he'll never directly tell you what to do, he'll just, you know, kind of wink and nod so that he knows how to work around it. And so that seven hour gap is, is so glaring. So either something was deleted or he intentionally moved off to use his own personal cell phone. Uh, to make calls. And so, yes, I, I hope they explore it because I bet you there's a trove of information there.
1: Yeah, And I, I'm assuming, Glenn, you know, you as a prosecutor, would, would, you know, that's something you would need. Right. I mean, if you're trying to piece together what the former president was doing on January 6th and there's seven and a half hour gap, you need that to subpoena those phone records. How difficult is that to do? How much time does it take? And would they need to involve the Justice Department?
3: Yeah, you know, you do need it. You want it. You want a complete record, Joy. But frankly, the absence of that seven or eight hours of phone calls is as important and perhaps even more incriminating than the phone calls themselves. Now, that remains to be seen because we have to first uh, subpoena the call detail records. We have to figure out what phones Donald Trump was using. Um, frankly, I, I think when you look at the testimony of somebody like Jared Kushner or his daughter Ivanka, you know, they might have some information about whether their father actually knew what the term burner phone meant. So, I mean, I think there, there's a lot to be unraveled here, but frankly, we've all heard if the crime don't get you, the cover-up will, and I think this seven or eight-hour gap is going to do so much more harm to Donald Trump and his associates than if they had just
7: produced the calls in the yep. first place. Well, Joy, well, can I just yeah, add please. that, you know, time is not on our side because, yeah. as Glenn knows, these cell phone record uh, companies, they don't keep the cell phones, the cell phone records forever. Uh, yep. Many of them, it's, it's nine, 12, maybe 18 months. And mm-hmm. so uh, we have to move now because they could be destroyed just in the re- the ordinary course of business.
1: And we also know that, you know, Donald Trump flushed, you know, paper records down the toilet and ate them. So, I mean, we know that he was not one that actually keeps records. We also know, Glenn, that he did know what a burner phone is, you know, per— his former national security advisor, John Bolton, um, there was a previous lawsuit in which he actually, you know, used the term burner phone, at least on his side. So he does know what a burner phone is. So some of that is silly. Let's talk. You, you mentioned Jared Kushner. What might um, he be able to produce, given that he was not there on January 6th physically? Um, what might they want to pull from him?
3: Well, he undoubtedly had conversations with his father-in-law, and the good news is there is no father-in-law, son-in-law privilege, just like there is no daddy-daughter privilege. So when and if Ivanka is compelled to testify or chooses to testify voluntarily, there will be no applicable privileges other than the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination in the event, either Ivanka or Jared's truthful testimony would incriminate them, make it seem like they committed a crime. But he undoubtedly had conversations with his father-in-law before, during, and after the insurrection, even if he wasn't present on January 6th. And, you know, sometimes we play the telephone game when we're prosecuting, when we're investigating crimes. I want to know what Ivanka, told Jared about her interactions with her father because all of that tends to build a record and then we we can get the overall picture you know before we go to the ultimate target and confront them with all of the evidence that we've obtained
1: yeah. And to come to you for a second, Congressman, you know, this news that the um, that was in The Washington Post, CNN has done some reporting on it, too, that the Justice Department actually is expanding its uh, its probe a little bit to get closer and closer to the central players. You know, I know some of your fellow Democrats have been very critical. Um, Congresswoman Lurie and others have said, do your job, DOJ. Do you feel better about what you're hearing?
7: I do. And these investigations take time. White-collar investigations are usually three to four years on average. But you see that both the committee, the January Sixth committee, they are starting to move up the chain. You yeah. know, Jared Kushner is the highest-ranking official that's been brought in so far, mm-hmm. and it also looks like if they're expanding the number of prosecutors on the criminal side, yeah. and also asking grand jury witnesses about people, you know, higher up, uh, that they are, you know, expanding what they're looking at. Look, m- most most of this was committed in plain sight. Yeah. But it does look like they want to have some other evidence, you know, to supplement what the president's already said.
1: Two more quick questions for you. I'm going to stay with you for a second, Congressman. Um, There was this pretty blockbuster ruling by a a federal judge um, about this Florida restrictive voting law in which he talked about uh, our democracy being under siege and the right to vote being under siege. are, Are Democrats concerned that if something like this gets appealed, it winds up in the in this in the Supreme Court where those six justices can just now rule because this is involved section two of the Voting Rights Act, that it winds up killing the Voting Rights Act altogether.
7: That's right. And I would feel much more comfortable if it was in a 50-50 Senate where Senators Sinema and Manchin would both yeah. vote to reform the filibuster and mm-hmm. then vote to put in place, put back in place the Voting Rights Act, because uh, this is just, you know, the dashboard is flashing all over the country with different states where you're seeing voting rights abuses. But these judges at the district court level, they can't do much if the Supreme Court is just going to overturn it.
1: Let me let the two of you, uh, you guys are kind of a buddy act. I I don't know if people realize that you guys are kind of a buddy act. There's a law, uh, I believe, that is now on the books because of you, Glenn, Um, Do you want to describe this law and tell us what uh, Glenn Kirschner had to do with it?
7: I'll give all credit to Glenn because as a federal prosecutor who's worked on a lot of homicide cases in the district in D.C., he told me about the the angst that so many families have because of the number of cold cases, 3,000 in D.C. And so he pitched to me the idea of having a homicide victims bill of rights that would allow a family after three years to have their case, their cold case reopened. It passed with... uh, over 400 Democratic and Republican votes in the Mm -hmm. House this week. It's headed Mm -hmm. uh, to the Senate and we hope that families will get some measure of closure uh, pretty soon.
1: Have you heard from any senators uh, and do you think that this has got a chance of becoming Law Glenn, as you inspired it?
7: Yeah, well, listen,
3: I give all of the thanks to Representative Swalwell for hearing me out on this. You know, I have all kinds of schemes and ideas, but he was willing to take it up because of his commitment to addressing violent crime. And, Joy, we have more than 250,000 open, unsolved homicide cases in our nation, and and that is horrific. These families sit by a phone hoping that a call will come from a detective saying— We have a break in your loved one's case. And those calls never come. And most of them are a product of gun violence. And and Representative Swalwell took the ball. He ran with it. And there is now some hope that will come to these families who, you know, wait for closure in their loved one's homicide case. So I couldn't be more thrilled that this is going to become the law of the land.
1: I, I never get to report, I almost never get to do good news on this show, so I had to get that in. And the audience can decide who plays the two of you in the buddy picture. Uh, Hollywood, get on it. Glenn Kirshner, uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank you both very much. Appreciate you both. Still ahead. More Republican senators now say they will oppose Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court, despite the fact that she is ridiculously well qualified, and some of them have voted to confirm her in the past, like literally within the past year. Back in a sec.
2: her record is overwhelming in its lack of a steady judicial philosophy and a tendency to achieve outcomes in spite of what the law requires or common sense would dictate. After a thorough review of Judge Jackson's record and information gained at the hearing from an evasive witness, I now know why Judge Jackson was the favorite of the radical left, and I will vote no.
1: Whatever, Lindsay, if you watch the Supreme Court nomination hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, you're probably not surprised that Senator Lindsey Graham, who snarled and barked through the entire four-day proceeding, announced today that he will, ooh, surprise, not vote to confirm her. Graham spoke on the Senate floor for over 20 minutes today, rattling off his list of grievances, including Judge Jackson's work as a public defender and the way Democrats treated Republican nominees, which, of course, isn't irrelevant. But just nine months ago, Graham and two other Republican senators actually voted to confirm Judge Jackson for the position that she holds right now on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. At the time, CNN reported that Graham told reporters, quote, I think she's qualified. I think I try to be somewhat consistent here. I think she's qualified for the job. She has a different philosophy than I do. So what changed in nine months, Lindsay? Of course, when it comes to consistency in Supreme Court nominations, Lindsey Graham magnificently fails you remember what he said in 2016 when Republicans refused to even meet with, let alone hold confirmation hearings for President Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland, who Judge Jackson ultimately replaced on the federal bench?
2: I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president who it whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right.
1: But then, like magic, good old Lindsey was front and center in the effort to jam through Trump's nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, just 38 days before the 2020 election.
2: I said, after Kavanaugh, the rules have changed for me. The whole game has changed. Well, when it comes to Republican nominees, Excuse me for the court. Uh, they get slaughtered. You got Borg, you got Thomas, you have Alito, you have Kavanaugh, and I'm tired of this crap. But here's the one thing I think every Republican believes, including me, if the shoe were on the other foot, they would do this in a New York minute.
1: Joining me now is MSNBC political analyst and former Senator Claire McCaskill. Oh, Claire. Oh, Claire, my friend. Oh, Explain, Lindsay. You, you had to deal with this guy. He is such an, a rank hypocrite. He literally just voted for this woman nine months ago to sit on the D.C. Circuit. Um, she replaced Merrick Garland. He literally just voted for her. Is this just a matter of him performatively wanting to beat up on a black woman? because he thinks that makes him more popular in South Carolina. What do you think is going on inside Lindsey Graham's head here?
8: Lindsey Graham suffers from a very serious disease, and it's called, I want to be the center of attention, and <laughs> I want everybody to like me that's in the political base of the current leader of the Republican Party, a.k.a. the guy at mar lago You know, it, it, you said it in the, in, the, in the intro to this segment, Joy, Merrick Garland is all we have to talk about if you want to talk about the road to making Supreme Court nominees 100% political. That was Mitch McConnell with the assistance of the Republican caucus that did that. And, you know, Lindsey got a lot of restorative juice from what he did around the Kavanaugh hearings. All of a sudden, Lindsey was the hero to Donald Trump. Donald Trump wanted to golf with him every weekend after Lindsey did what he did in that hearing. So he's not going to let go of the Kavanaugh hearings. That made him a superstar among the rabid right. And the last thing I want to say about this, because it really irritates me, you understand that this justice, while sitting on the court, had two cases in front of her that were highly politically charged. Mm -hmm. If she was what Lindsey Graham says, she would have ruled against the people trying to get Hillary Clinton's emails from the Mm -hmm. State Department, and she would have ruled with the people who were trying to stop the wall. Instead, she did just the opposite. She said, you're entitled to the emails, and she said, there's nothing in this lawsuit that stops the wall. So this is not a political judge, and Lindsey Graham knows it.
1: And, and the thing that's so infuriating about it is that it feels like just because he's mad and in his feelings about, you know, Kavanaugh, who nobody it's not anybody else's fault but his that he was accused of what he is alleged to have done in high school. Nobody did that to him. He did that. He was the person who did that. That's nobody's fault but his. And because he's in his feelings, he wants to put an asterisk on this justice that she barely got through, and it looks like do you do you anticipate anybody but Susan Collins? Because there, there's literally a dozen Republicans who have voted for her before. Do you think she'll get more than you know one or two Republican votes?
8: The change in the election laws in Alaska are really interesting. Maybe some night we'll have a segment to talk about that because Lisa Murkowski um, is not she she is going to need some votes from the Democratic Party, and it will not surprise me she voted for this incredibly qualified woman a year ago. Uh, it's not going to surprise me if we get two, both Lisa and Susan.
1: Yeah. And lastly, just uh, before I think, are we out of time? I might have a a minute of time. Game out for us the situation the Democrats are facing right now. There is a whole debate over who they should be trying to appeal to, because these numbers don't look good for them on enthusiasm among Democrats. But the reason people are unenthusiastic appear to be things that should be good for Democrats. They're, yes, upset about the cost of living, but also don't want to lose the right to abortion. Where would you fall in terms of where Democrats should be focusing for these midterms? terms.
8: I think that everybody should put all hands on deck to do something about inflation. If we get inflation down, we've got an incredible message. And the other thing we should keep talking about is if they want to keep you from voting, doesn't it make you want to vote? I mean that is a powerful psychological tool. Everybody knows what the Republicans are doing. They want marginalized yeah. people. They want people who have are transient, who haven't lived in the same place for a long time. They want students. They want black and brown people. They want to keep them from voting. We've got to make sure that we keep that front and center. Because if somebody tells you you can't vote, guess what? It makes yeah. you want to do. Yeah, go vote.
1: And do you think, I mean, do you get the sense, because I, I have talked to people who have said that the best thing going for the Democrats right now are the looney tunes that Republicans are deciding to nominate. I mean, you know, this poor gentleman in Georgia, every time he opens his mouth, you just cringe. You know, oh, my God, he was a great football player, but oh, my God. You know, you just, they're, they're nominating so many cringeworthy people um, because they're trying to, as you said, appeal to the one retired guy in Florida, people he would like. Do you think that Republicans are maybe undercutting what could, in theory, be advantages for them, at least in the sen- on the Senate side. I, yeah,
8: I think so. And and you know, like you look at Missouri. I mean, leading all the polls is a former governor who taped up his mistress to gym equipment, ripped her T-shirt, and spit water in her mouth, and threatened to take pictures of her. Uh, I mean that, and that was the facts as found by a Republican committee. So I mean, and he's leading the polls. So you know, yeah. you never know if they if they nominate all these really flawed candidates. I think we're in business.
1: And it's funny that they're doing it at the behest of Donald Trump because they can't say no to him. And they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot and making their party just look QAnon crazy. Uh, former Senator Claire McCaskill, thank you very much. Always fun talking with you. And thank up you. next here, still more questions and answers about what is happening in the wake of the slack herd around the world. We will bring you the latest developments. Stay with us. Four days after the slap that rocked Hollywood, we are getting a first-hand account from the producer in charge of Sunday's Academy Awards broadcast. In an interview tonight, producer Will Packer said after Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, the LAPD spoke with him and Chris Rock in his office.
9: They were saying, you know, this is battery was the word they used in that moment. They said... Uh, we will go get him, we are prepared, we're prepared to get him right now, you can press charges, we can arrest him, you have, they were laying out the options. The LAPD officers finished laying out what his options were and, um, and they said, you know, would you like us to take any action? And he said no, he said no.
1: Packer told ABC he, ABC he did not speak with Will Smith at all that night, adding another layer to the drama behind the fallout from the slap. In a statement Wednesday, the Academy claimed that Smith was Asked to leave the ceremony and refused. But today, several reports disputed that account. Sources telling Variety, TMZ, and Deadline that Smith was never formally asked to leave and that Packer played a role in keeping Smith at the ceremony. For his part, Chris Rock made his first public appearance last night in Boston in front of a sold out crowd. But he didn't say much. He's still processing the slap, he said. The incident also highlights another ugly moment at the Oscars that did not get the same scrutiny. In 1973, Activist Shasheen Littlefeather represented Marlon Brando, who won Best Actor for The Godfather, but declined to accept the award and had Littlefeather represent him instead. And here's what happened when she took the stage.
0: The reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me.
1: In 2016, Littlefeather told Canada's Globe and Mail that during her presentation, John Wayne, the actor, was waiting backstage to take me off. He had to be restrained by six security men. And joining me now, entertainment journalist Chris Witherspoon, founder and CEO of Pop Viewers, and my friend Chris, you know, I I wanted to play that 1973 clip because it it points out two things. First of all, that there have been, you know, dramatic moments during acceptance speeches before. This wasn't the first time, although this was unprecedented, clearly somebody being struck, but that there's security in there. There were six security guards available to hold John Wayne back in 1973, but in the case of Will Smith, everybody just watched him walk to the stage. So it's hard for me f- to listen to the Academy blame everyone but themselves.
9: Your thoughts. Enjoy. Thank you for bringing those receipts, those legendary receipts from back in the day. It's amazing. But it really does feel like I'm watching an episode of Blue's Clues. You know, if you're looking for a clue. There's so much <laughs> misinformation out there. You know, yep. the Academy. Account- Out yesterday saying what they said about Will Smith being asked to leave the ceremony. But now we're hearing from Deadline and Variety that Will Smith was not asked to leave the ceremony, that a representative from him possibly was talked to about him leaving, batted around the idea, but that Will wanted to stay and make this right if he were to win and go to the stage and apologize.
1: Right. And see, that's the other piece, too, because when people um, have been repeating this all day, including on some uh, news networks, um, they just keep repeating he was asked to leave and refuse when there's so much reporting disputing that. And they're not adding the piece that that, as you said, the reports are saying that the reason he wanted to stay because he wanted to apologize, he wanted to make it right, and that's what he did. Um, th- Talk about this other thing, too, because Wanda Sykes, to me, is the other evidence that what the Academy initially said isn't true, because she berated the Academy for letting him stay. She did an interview, a uh, full-face interview. She was one of the co-hosts and said Chris Rock apologized to her for what happened, but that she said they didn't have him leave. So she seemed to be putting it on the Academy as
9: well. Yeah, and it really does feel like, based on what Wanda Sykes is saying and others, that we need to hear like an actual press conference, a full-blown press conference, a la like any of the crimes that we see happen, like major crimes, where we hear from the president, David Rubin, and, and Don Hudson. It is time for us to be able to ask questions and really piece together a timeline of what happened in those 30 minutes. It was only 30 minutes. The slap happened, then 30 minutes happened, a few commercial breaks, but we need yeah. to find out more facts, because this is this man's career. Well, it's both yeah. of their careers, but I think Will Smith right now, his head is on the chopping block, and he really is uh, and so much, to, so, to so many people uh, a treasure, a national treasure. Our greatest export in this country are our stars, and Will yep. Smith is one of them.
1: And by the way, the five people who've had who've been expelled from the Academy, it's one of the things that's potentially on the table, four of the five were involved in some sort of sexual deviancy, Harvey Weinstein, Roman Polanski, Bill Cosby, um, there was a cinematographer named Adam there was one person, actor, who was expelled for non-sexual offenses, for selling copies of screeners. Um, talk to me really quickly about this other thing that's happened, because there has been sort of a—there's been like a war going on, you know, not just on Black Twitter, where people are either Team Will or their Team Chris, but also a lot of attacks on Jada Pinkett as well.
9: Well, I think that for so many people, Jada, a couple of years ago with the Red Table Talk, coming out, talking about their, their their marriage, whatever you want to call it, the entanglement, if it were, that Jada in many ways has been the person to get Will hyped up and riled up and put him in awkward positions. At the end of the day, they are a dynamic power couple. And I'm curious to see what they discuss uh, at the Red Table Talk. It's going to be so important that they get that out ASAP. But I also yeah. want to note that important to say that I think Will Smith should be able to keep his Oscar. You mentioned all those folks that were expelled from the Academy. No one yet in the history of the Oscars has had that award taken back. And Will Smith is someone... He has he's he's shattered so many glass ceilings, Joy, before he was 30 years old, he made one point five billion dollars in ticket sales at movies. No one's done that before. So I think that Will Smith beyond the Oscar, without an Oscar, he still is a huge, huge box office straw. And I hope that we get to the bottom of this and he gets to have, I think, his story told and whatever, you know, whatever actually get out there.
1: And without the noir against uh, Jada. And lastly, Chris Rock is actually kind of winning here, too, because he whatever his next big Netflix special is going to be like, it's going to sell millions and millions and millions of dollars he's going to get. Right. I mean, he, he's benefiting in some ways.
9: Getting all the coins right now, Joy. He's his concert tour is happening right now in Boston. Tickets were selling initially for forty nine dollars. Rumor yeah. has it right now they're between eight hundred and on the on the like. On the web, eight thousand dollars folks are buying tickets to go see his concerts. So if he's smart, he probably has the camera crew that's filming. what he's doing right now be a part of a special that he can then package and sell to Netflix or Hulu or whomever the highest bidder is. Because this is this is you You
1: can't can't buy the kind of police. You know who you want to be right now? Chris Rock, Chris Rock's agent. (laughs) Chris Witherspoon. My favorite Chris, Chris Witherspoon. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. And uh, by the way, tomorrow is going to be a very big day. I'm going to tell you all about it next. Be right back. Okay, before we go, I wanted to tell you about something really, really exciting that's happening tomorrow on The Readout. Vice President Kamala Harris will be my guest for an exclusive and wide-ranging interview. There is a lot going on in the world right now. Vladimir Putin's army continues its terror campaign against Ukrainian civilians. While here in the U.S., the Republican Party is preparing a midterm campaign to terrify Americans into thinking their kids are being taught critical race theory in kindergarten and that transgender Americans are somehow a threat to them or their kids or their favorite children's sporting event. By the way, today is International Transgender Day of Visibility, so sending lots of love to my transgender peeps, especially the kids. You are seen and loved. Never doubt it. And there is the Senate, where Kamala Harris's former colleagues on the right are doing the most, finding ever more creative ways to slime the reputation of one of the most qualified Supreme Court nominees ever, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who will be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. So there is a lot to discuss with our first black woman VP. But I also want to know what you think. So tweet me your ideas and what you want to know at Joy and Reed's Spell it right. R.E.I.D. And then tune in tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern. I will be traveling to Greenville, Mississippi with the vice president for the interview. It will be fascinating. You don't want to miss it. And that is the readout for now.